0: Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, a new book called King of Spies, The Dark Reign of America's Spy Master in Korea by Blaine Hardin. Blaine Harden served as the Washington Post's bureau chief in East Asia, Eastern Europe, and Africa. He also worked as a national correspondent for the New York Times and has contributed to The Economist, PBS Frontline, Time, and Foreign Policy. He is the author of The Great Leader and the Fighter Pilot, Escape from Camp 14, an international bestseller that has been published in 28 languages, A River Lost, and Africa, Dispatches from a Fragile Continent, which won a Penn American Center citation for a first book of nonfiction. Blaine Harden, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Good to be with you. Uh, great to have you on. That's quite a lineup of books, and this newest one I highly recommend to everyone listening The King of Spies. Uh, who was the King of Spies?
1: Well, his name uh, was Donald Nichols. And he was an unlikely spy in that he had a a seventh-grade dropout. He came from a a, a desperately poor and fouled-up family, and he joined the uh, Army when he was 17. Um, And he served in World War II, but he really didn't become an intelligence agent until the Korean War. In fact, he started training for that war. He went to Korea uh, four years before it started. So he learned to speak the language passably, he learned the context he, uh, in the country, and he befriended the man who would become the most powerful man in South Korea, Sigmund Rhee. And that relationship, which was sort of a father-son relationship of a 70-year-old autocrat with a 23-year-old intelligence agent, was the source of Nichols' power, and also it, was, it pushed him into, into the darkness that characterized much of his career.
0: Well, can you elaborate on darkness?
1: Well, Sigmund Rhee was America's puppet in the South, uh, in a divided Korea. And Sigmund Rhee, uh, besides fighting against the North Koreans in the Korean War, fought a civil war against his own people who wanted land reform and who wanted a, a more socialist kind of government than he was willing to support. Uh, he was backed by property owners, primarily people who were relatively well-off in Korea and who had collaborated with colonial, the colonial Japanese uh, before World War II. In any case, the two sides went to war in a very, very brutal civil war uh, that preceded the Korean War. And in that war, Donald Nichols got involved. Um, he trained the police. He attended torture sessions. He attended mass killings, and he did not report up the chain of command about the atrocities that he was uh, a witness to. Uh, I found a picture of Donald Nichols uh, standing on the roof of the South Korean Army headquarters in Seoul in the late 1940s. And next to him was a human head in a bucket. And this was the kind of world that Donald Donald Nichols lived in for about 11 years in Korea. He had an extraordinarily long tenure, um, 11 years in any place for an intelligence agent, particularly one who uh, calls himself the son of the head of state. is something just outside of the, uh, to the parameters of, of intelligence operations. And he, he, it's probably accurate to say that Donald Nichols
0: was unique in unique indeed it's a, it's a phenomenal story uh, but the atrocities that he was part of the license he was given to murder and destroy was was knowingly given right i mean he he it was understood by his superiors in the US military and the US government that this is what he was doing
1: well i'm not so sure that his superiors knew exactly what he was doing in terms of hanging out on the roof with severed heads. But I, I do know that uh, for, for a couple reasons, Donald Nichols was given an incredibly long leash to do what he saw fit. And part of it was that uh, there was a huge vacuum of intelligence operatives in Korea uh, before the start of the Korean War in 1950, those four years after Nichols arrived in '46 until the war started. There was a a vacuum that uh, sort of gave the field to whoever wanted it and whoever wanted it the best, uh, the most, and could do the best job, and that was Nichols. So he filled a vacuum. And then when the war started, um, suddenly this was, you know, the number one issue for the United States government: how do we, how do we fight back against this North Korean invasion? How do we uh, preserve South Korea? And they were very short on answers. And one of the few people who really knew what he was doing on the ground and who immediately began providing bombing targets within four days of the invasion, he was sending detailed bombing targets to the U.S. Air Force uh, in Tokyo. So Nichols was really in the catbird seat. And because he had information, he had a plan, he was then given power. When the war started, he was a master sergeant, and within about four months, he was a major. Uh, so that kind of promotion is, is just astonishing. In fact, he was promoted so fast um, that the, the chief general in charge of the Air Force, George, George Stratemeyer, he had to write to the Joint Chiefs to sort of explain why they were promoting this guy so fast. And the, his reason was that he's the best we have. We have to give him authority in the field.
0: And Sigmund Rhee, who Nichols had this tight relationship with, uh, tell people a little bit about where he came from, specifically the, the Washington, D.C. area.
1: Right. Sigmund Rhee was, was an extremely interesting uh, and, and difficult man. He was he, he was born in Korea. He uh, was jailed for a time uh, when he was extremely young in his teens. Uh, and he did not cooperate with the colonial Japanese authorities. Um, and then he left. Um, he, 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 he he won the attention of some American missionaries who sponsored his uh, travel to the United States um, when he was quite a young man in his 20s. And when he got to the United States, he acquired the most glittering educational credentials of any Korean individual on Earth. He uh, got a... a, a B.A. from George Washington University, a M.A. in History from Harvard, and then a Ph.D. in International History from Princeton. This trifecta of credentials that allowed him to sort of represent himself as the uh, the presence in Washington of, of the Korean people. And so he was in Washington, in and around Washington on the East Coast, for most of his life. And in 1950, uh, actually in 1946, when the Americans cut the uh, Korean Peninsula in half, they needed somebody uh, who they thought would be a malleable English-speaking puppet to be the titular head of South Korea. Because they 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 knew that in the North, the, the Soviet Union uh, had found their own puppet, Kim Il-sung, who's the grandfather of Kim Jong-un, the man who is now um, threatening the United States with nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles. Um, But Sigmund Rhee was, when he arrived in South Korea in 1946, he quickly turned into a very difficult-to-manage puppet, no puppet at all, in fact, Um, but as he was trying to position himself to use the power of the American government to increase his power. He met Donald Nichols. Uh, Sigmund Ree was 71 at the time. Nichols was 23. Nichols was as raw a intelligence officer as you could imagine, but they found favor in each other's eyes. And what happened was that uh, Sigmund Ree used Nichols as a kind of back channel to deliver the kind of information that he wanted delivered to the highest levels of the intelligence community of the United States. And Nichols used his contact with Sigmund Rhee to enhance his power. He made it clear to his colonels and generals that he was the only American who had this 24-hour 24 access, 24 access to Sigmund Rhee. And then he also went around to other officials in the South Korean government and said, your president is my friend. Um, and he would use that position to give himself power and information. Um, so they both they, the, the relationship was was long and lucrative for both of them. It lasted for eleven years until Nichols was uh, removed from the Korean Peninsula.
0: Yeah, we're, we're speaking with Blaine Hardin, uh, the author of King of Spies, The Dark Reign of America's Spy Master in Korea. Now, Syngman Rhee wanted to unify the peninsula under his own rule and wanted a war and was engaging in raids across the border and seeking to to start a war, was he not?
1: He was. Um, and he, he was, in, in, in the similarities between Sigmund Rhee and Kim Il-sung, uh, at that point in history, from 1946 until 1950, were rather, uh, they, were, they were very much alike. They were both belligerent. They both wanted to unify the Korean Peninsula using arms from their, uh, from their you know, respective mothership, Soviet Union under Stalin for Kim Il-sung and uh, the uh, United States military under Harry Truman. Um, but as the, those years ground on from 46 to 1950, the two puppet leaders who became authoritarian dictators during that time, uh, they, they had much different results in terms of getting military backing. Um, Stalin slowly, slowly started to give Kim Il-sung the means to go to war. Uh, modern aircraft, modern artillery, uh and all the, all the, all the, the, the trimmings for uh, a military invasion. And at the same time, Truman started to take those things away from Sigmund Rhee. Uh, by the time the invasion of North, from North Korea into the South occurred in the summer of 1950, there were only about 500 American uh, military people there. Um, they, they, there was no modern aircraft very little artillery. In, in a sense, Truman had turned South Korea into a sitting duck.
0: And, but the reason I, I ask is that in the book you recount how this king of spies, uh, Don Nichols, was able to accurately predict that there was going to be a war, uh, whereas right. the, the rest of the U.S. military was sort of willfully oblivious. And, and I wonder if part of his ability to predict that there was going to be a war came out of the fact that he was buddies with one of the two parties trying to start the war.
1: Well, th- th- there, there is some truth to that. Um, but Nichols, by 1950, had established... His own independent sources of information. Uh he had a large Korean staff that was reporting to him and he had connections across the north, north of the thirty eighth parallel. So I have seen hundreds of, of intelligence reports that he wrote that are based on eyewitness reports from agents that were reporting to him and his organization that talked about where the Russians were building uh, uh, new air bases and bringing in new aircraft, and the same for artillery and uh, uh, APCs and tanks. So so Nichols was well-sourced, and he provided this very specific, specific information about when the invasion was coming to Douglas MacArthur and his chief of intelligence. And one of the peculiarities about the power structure in the Far East at that time was, MacArthur was based in Tokyo. He was rehabilitating Japan for integration into the world economy. And he did he did a great job, but he was very focused on what he was doing, and he didn't want to waste resources, money, uh, intelligence, uh, time worrying about the Korean Peninsula. And his chief of intelligence, a man named Charles Willoughby, was an expert in giving MacArthur exactly what Macarthur wanted. Uh, Macarthur did not want to learn what he didn't already know, and so Willoughby suppressed uh, and ignored and discredited intelligence reports coming from Korea, saying that an invasion was imminent. In fact, it was. Some of Nichols' reports were so annoying to Willoughby uh, that he tried to fire Nichols and uh, tried to force him off the Korean Peninsula. He failed. Um, but in any case, the Americans broadly were caught with their pants down when the invasion occurred.
0: The the reports that you describe in the book by Nichols as being so brilliant and detailed and informative and valuable to the U.S. military Seem odd in that his formal education was up through what part of seventh grade, and uh, he later in his life hires a, a school teacher to help him with grammar when he's writing his autobiography. I mean, were they really brilliant? I haven't read them, and you have, or, or were well, they? Well,
1: I have, of... and they were. They were really good. Um, in fact, the reason I, I was impressed by one of them in particular is on a previous book. I was writing about a North Korean fighter pilot who defected in 1953 in a celebrated uh, defection that brought the Americans the first access to a battle-ready MiG. This was a big deal, actually, one of the major defections of the Cold War. And Nichols was the uh, lead interrogator. Uh, it, when uh, when the when the pilot landed in South Korea with this MiG, and within about six days, Nichols wrote a I think it was about a twenty eight thirty page report on what he'd learned and what what the what the world had learned about what had gone on in the Korean War secretly uh, that the pilot had told him, and it was well done and it was done under deadline pressure and it was read by. Every, uh, you know, important intelligence official in the United States government. And he, Nichols was really congratulated for that document, uh, that report, not only by, uh, me 60 years later when I read it, I thought, boy, this is good work, but it, by, by all of the military intelligence officials who read it. And it was one of the major reasons, uh, why he was allowed to stay on for four more years after the war. It just was a great piece of intelligence work. Maybe he had a, a secretary at that point who could clean up his spelling and grammar, I don't know. But his ability to, his ability to cogitate and to understand the broader ramifications of what this defection meant were extraordinary. Uh, Nichols, was, you know, not everybody who drops out of school is stupid. He was a really bright guy.
0: Yeah, and self-educated, it's, it seems like. There wasn't a, a particular tutor or, or maestro for him along the way.
1: Well, I didn't find one. Um, I, I think that he had this sort of street cunning, and you know he did also write thousands of reports during the war. He learned his craft yeah. uh, by doing it under under... Incredible deadline pressure for three solid years, rarely taking a day off.
0: Uh, Now, you've sort of unearthed this unknown but central and important story from the the Korean War for a U.S. audience, but uh, as you recount, he was known in North Korea, and he was put on trial publicly in absentia for war crimes in in North Korea. Can you you describe uh, what happened there?
1: Well, what happened after the war was over, Kim Il-sung had a very bad war. His army was destroyed by uh, the United Nations force led by the Americans. His cities were destroyed by U.S. Air Force carpet bombing. And he lived a good part of the war in a bunker. And when the Chinese intervened in the fall of 1950 to save North Korea from going out of existence... Uh, the Chinese General in charge of the Chinese troops, he basically told Nichols to shut up, and I told Kim Il-sung to go stand in a corner. He said, "You're a child, you're a poor leader, and I don't want you involved in the, in your in the war that you started." So all of that, was what actually happened during the war, but when the war was over, Kim Il Sung had to rehabilitate his image. He had to present a propaganda story to his own people, saying that he was the brilliant general who kept the sneaky Americans and South Koreans from destroying North Korea. So they had a show trial. It was it was an elaborate fiction uh, to try to uh, rehabilitate Kim Il Sung's image, and in that show trial, Nichols was. An important character. They said that Nichols had paid uh, large amounts of cash to 11 uh, North Korean officials to get them to try to overthrow Kim Il-sung and to kill him. Some of it was true, some of it wasn't. But in any case, Nichols' name was prominent in this trial, and that trial was covered by the Western press. Um, But no one picked up on who Nichols was, and no one really believed the allegations. But as I read the allegations in the Rodong Sinmun, the the party newspaper at the time that was published in Pyongyang, they were not too far from the truth. Nichols had paid off people to try to overthrow that government. Um, And the North Koreans were very much aware of who Nichols were, and they sent at least one assassin to try to
0: kill him. And uh, the Western press, or at least the U.S. press, as I recall in your book, didn't, didn't mention Nichols' name at all.
1: I could find nothing in the U.S. press or in any English-language news agency um, that mentioned Nichols by name. Um, He was in the North Korean press and on the radio uh, where they they talked about him, and that's where he was called the King of Spies.
0: Yeah, and you don't think that uh, the, the obedience to the U.S. government of the U.S. press may have played a role there? I
1: don't know. Uh, I, d- I just don't know why he, he, he uh, managed to lie so low. Uh, the reason I think he was lost to history, and this is the uh, sort of the, the dark concluding chapters of the book, is uh, Nichols was um, discredited and became a non-person because of the action of the U.S. Air Force, the branch of the military for which he worked. And what happened was in 1957, after Nichols had been in the country for 11 con- consecutive years and still very close to Sigmund Ree. and at the time Sigmund Ree was continuing to eliminate his political enemies by having them jailed or killed, Nichols was still close to Sigmund Rhee at this point. At some point, the U.S. Air Force decided that they'd had enough of Donald Nichols in the country. In the summer of 1957, he was uh, taken away from his own base. He had his own secret base near Seoul. He was taken away in a straitjacket. And according to his military service record and the psychiatric treatment notes that I've obtained, he was taken first to a military hospital in Japan where he was put in the psych ward and where he kept asking, why am I here? And then he started to get really, really angry, pounding the walls Breaking windows, running outside in his pajamas—they, as, uh,
0: as a sane person uh, might do, drugged him with, huh? As a sane person might do in such a situation,
1: as a sane person might do. He was quickly diagnosed when he got to Tokyo, according to the medical records, as severely schizophrenic—a diagnosis that has no relation to his behavior when he was a spy. Uh, There was nothing in his military service record prior to that hospitalization to indicate that he was schizophrenic or in any way mentally ill. In any case, he only stayed for two weeks in Japan. Then he was put on a plane and then flown to Eglin Air Force Base, a very large Air Force Base in the Florida Panhandle. And he was taken there to the military hospital, put in the psych ward, and within a few days they started to give him uh, uh, heavy... Uh, Treatments with electroshock uh, every day um, for about a month, and then uh, about and then every other day for uh, for a couple more months. Uh, he said at the time that the U.S. Air Force was trying to destroy his memory. In any case, he was then forced out of the Air Force, and the, the electroshock had discredited him and also had confused him considerably, uh, and he was done. As a as a spy, uh, I I talked to a U.S. Air Force command historian for the Special Forces about Nichols. Uh, actually, when I was beginning this book, and he said that everyone recognizes that Nichols was in many ways a founding father of special operations for the Air Force and and for the military. He did he he was he was a creative. An innovative, hardworking guy during those 11 years in Korea. But they also knew that he had, uh, you know, a, a, this really big dark river flowing through the middle of his career. So, what this guy said, he says, Nichols uh, uh, um, was the kind of guy uh, you want fighting for you in time of war, but in time of peace, you lock him up. They locked him up only for a few months months in a psychiatric uh, facility, but then he was fundamentally destroyed as as a spy and as a person, and he wandered in America for the next 30 years. And he described those years, those decades of his life, as being a member of the living dead, a kind of ex-spy zombie wandering in South Florida.
0: It, it, it is a bizarre and horrible story. Um, we have just a few minutes left. Blaine Harden. I, I want to ask you as someone who has studied the, the war in, in the 1950s uh, in detail, what does the U.S. public need to know now uh, that it doesn't understand about the way North Koreans might perceive things and approach the world?
1: I think what's really important to understand is, as the war was prosecuted after North Korea invaded the South in a, in a really brutal uh, and punishing invasion, the Americans were for a couple months uh, confused and overwhelmed. But you know, the American war machine uh, quickly recovered, and the the most dominant part of it throughout the war was the bombing. Um, these big uh, B-29s. Uh, we, we had lots of B-29s left over from World War II. We had lots of trained pilots. We had you know, warehouse after warehouse full of conventional bombs and napalm. And so the American Air Force went to work systematically bombing all of North Korea and uh, blew up and burned down virtually all the cities in the country. Uh, some estimates of the civilian death toll are as high as 20%. And those are estimates by U.S. Air Force generals. So it was was a barbaric and cruel and sustained operation. And all the people of North Korea who are now alive have grandparents uh, or had grandparents or great uncles who were either killed or maimed or suffered terribly because of this. What the Kim family regime has done, rather brilliantly, is to take this fact-based narrative and keep it alive, keep it terrifyingly alive in the, the daily existence of all North Koreans. So they believe that Americans are inevitably going to come back with bombs and fire and death. And this fear and this anger... Which is reinforced by propaganda and by isolation inside North Korea,
0: and by the U.S. president threatening to, to destroy the whole country. Right? Yeah. The, the The Korean regime hasn't brilliantly invented a U.S. president threatening to totally destroy their country, or a senator from Arizona threatening to exterminate them. Right? That the U.S. is chipping in. That, That's true.
1: That. That's true. And what what that what that does is it gives, uh, you know, it gives more fact-based energy to this narrative and it 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 makes it possible for for you know this is the longest livid uh totalitarian regime in world history more than twice as long as stalin or mao or anybody else and for it to continue to exist it needs a measure of legitimacy of buy-in from its own people the history of the korean war helps and the tweets from
0: donald trump also help very well said and the book is very well written it is called the king i'm sorry king of spies the dark reign of america's spy master in korea the author is blaine harden blaine thank you very very much for coming on talk nation radio my pleasure thank you this is talk nation radio i'm david swanson take action at rootsaction.org Until next time.